Welcome to First Up, it's Ratu, Tuesday the 23rd of August, Kona Trubridge Aho. Coming up, Imran Khan has charged under Pakistan's anti-terror laws, deepening the country's political crisis. Wellington prepares for the arrival of more anti-government protesters. Will this look anything like February's three-week occupation? Nationals Deputy Nicola Willis discusses the country's staff shortage and the future of Kiwi Bank. Plus, a team of Nelson tradies are helping repair homes wrecked in the region's floods free of charge. Some people noticed our post on Facebook and basically took up the offer and said, look, I am struggling. We helped a single mum, we helped an elderly lady. So it was quite good to be able to do that. Atamaria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nick Trubridge. Uh, we're going to begin in Pakistan, where a political crisis has deepened in just the last few hours after former Prime Minister Imran Khan was charged under the country's anti-terror laws. The charges follow comments he made over the weekend, which police say were threats against a number of officials. The BBC's Pumza Filani has more from Islamabad. <laughs> Walking into a sea of unwavering support, this is Imran Khan's first major appearance since being charged with terrorism at the weekend. Islamabad IG. It's this address that started it all. In the speech, Mr Khan condemned Islamabad's police chief and a female judge for the detention and alleged torture of his close aide, Shehbaz Kil, who is currently being investigated over a sedition charge. Politically, his supporters have vowed to defend him and say they will not back down. We're outside former Prime Minister Imran Khan's Benigala home, about 500 metres from where we're standing is where his house is. Now there's a barrier that's keeping his supporters from going any further. Now they've told us that the reason they've come out here, some of them have been here since last night, is to show their support for the former Prime Minister, who they say has been unfairly targeted. There's been in the last few hours temporary relief for them, which has been in the form of a bail being granted for the former Prime Minister. It gives him a few days to strategize and plan his next move. Of course, in the meantime, political tensions are increasing in Pakistan, with Mr Khan's supporters believing he is the target of a witch hunt. We will stand in front and give our lives, but we will not let anyone go near him. Imran Khan is our last hope. They'll have to walk over our bodies to arrest him. The country's police have accused the former cricket star of causing fear amongst Pakistanis and want him to be made an example of. It's early stages in the case, but if found guilty, as stipulated by the Terrorism Act, he could face several years in prison, life imprisonment or even a fine. The case is seen by some as a standoff between Mr Khan and the new coalition government, coming to a head. There are concerns, however, that if things continue down this path, it could lead to civil unrest. Pumza Fulani with that report. Right, we're going to go to the UK where it's predicted that inflation may hit 18% next year. That makes our uh, our uh, forecast look, well, they pale in comparison, don't they? Anyway, with me right now is London, uh, from London is our correspondent Henry Riley. Morena, Henry. Hello, Nick. 18%. I think last time we spoke the forecast was 13 What on earth has happened I know, literally in the space of a week. I'm not quite sure what's happened. Um, I mean, this is incredible. This, it's important to say, it's not from 
an official source, but it's from a pretty reliable source in the UK. It's from the investment bank, uh, Citibank, which is very reliable. You know, they often uh, have pretty correct forecasts. We spoke and we had our inflation figures last week, which showed for the month of July, it hit 10.1%. And even at the start of the year, people who were saying that inflation could hit double digit in the UK, many people were saying that it was sort of a, a fear factor and that it wouldn't happen. And as you say today, this warning that it could top 18% is really worrying people. And um, what's the reason? Well, a lot of it is due to energy prices in the UK. A lot of it is due to food prices in the UK, both of which have risen exponentially. The Bank of England forecast is still at 13%, but it's it's sort of expected that this particular forecast from Citibank is slightly more updated, slightly more realistic. Um, some experts expecting it to be somewhere in the middle of the two. And, you know, just to give an example, in London, the pu- price of a pint of beer is about you know £5.50 at the moment. If that had risen with energy prices at the moment, it would be at £26 at the moment. So there's a real problem with sort of rising energy costs and, and rising inflation in the UK. Yeah, and just looking at The Guardian right now, 13% they're saying would be optimistic. Yeah, I know. And you compare that with some of our G7 countries, it, it, it really is a lot higher with Canada, with US, with France, It you know, all, almost triple those countries mm. in some instances in terms of inflation. Meanwhile, there's still this conservative race going on, isn't there? And uh, I mean, it, it, it seems like we talk about this every week and it still feels so far away until there's actually someone new in the hot seat, so to speak. But there's research suggesting uh, some conservative voters, geez, would now prefer Boris over the two options, They one of the two options they might end up with, of course, Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak. Yeah, a sort of seller's remorse. Um, many Conservative MPs and uh, Conservative voters were sick of Boris Johnson. You know, we had the whole issue of Partygate in the UK. He had terrible approval ratings. He had the worst approval ratings of a prime minister since the Second World War at one point. So he really wasn't very popular. But there is a sort of sense that it was the MPs that forced Boris Johnson out, those politicians in the sort of higher echelons of power, as opposed to Conservative voters. And there is research that suggests that Conservative voters do not want Boris Johnson to uh, eventually quit as Prime Minister in just a couple of weeks time I mean 49% according to one poll that was out today by the Times uh, 49% of Tory supporters thought Johnson should remain as Prime Minister, now that is more than Truss and Sunak put together it's an extremely high number and there was actually a campaign uh, a few weeks ago to get Boris Johnson on the ballot paper so Conservative members could stick with Boris that wasn't successful uh, he won't be staying as Prime Minister but nonetheless voters are still, uh, still going to miss him by the look of it. Where is he? Last time we spoke he was on a beach in uh, maybe Greece. Can't remember exactly where. Has he has he been sighted? He's back now. He is back. He is back. He's sort of mid removal. He's we've seen the removal lorries at Downing Street. So I think most of his stuff is actually packed up, ready to go. Mm. So it doesn't look like he's going to be hanging around. But he's now back in the UK and looked like he had a very nice time in Greece. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he did. Uh, uh, the Conservative LBGT, sorry, LGBTQ group plans to distribute condoms at the party press conference uh, at the party conference rather what what point are they trying to make with this I think it's quite a provocative point but the the main idea is that it's to promote um, the safer sex message is what the group is saying this is the LGBT uh, plus conservative group they are at most conferences I'm going so I could pick myself up a few if you guys want some I'll send it over to New Zealand send some over um, Yep, just choose which MPs you like the best. We've got Gary Sandbrook, which is Strap It for Sandbrook. 
Peter Gibson, which is glove it for Gibbo. I won't go through the whole list, don't worry. Uh, and Nick Rogers is uh, Roger for Nick. So there's a, there's an array of different uh, of different ones there. You don't actually have to get a personalised MP one. You can get Unleash Britain's Potential I'm... and Labour isn't working, but this condom will. So it's a bit of fun, I think. Yeah. And uh, I have no doubt they'll be snapped up pretty quickly at this year's Conservative Party conference. Roger for Nick, for me, I think would make the most sense. Yeah. Uh, Hey, thanks, Henry. Henry Riley there from London this morning. And there were a couple of others. He didn't read out all of them. There's Andrew Boff, Boff Safely, Emma Best, Bang for Best. There you go. Anyway, right. It is, uh, what are we, 13 minutes past five. You're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nick Trubridge. We're keen for your feedback. Uh, Wellingtonians, we want to hear from you. Are you avoiding parts of the CBD today due to the arriving protesters? What do you think of the protest? Uh, All good or over it? Let us know. You can text us, 2101. Tweet us at firstuprnz or email firstup at rnz.co.nz. Of course, we're also on Facebook and Instagram at firstuprnz. To Japan now, where Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has contracted COVID-19 just after the country's summer vacation. He was apparently he, he was apparently one of the holidaymakers who took the virus to all corners of the country. Not ideal. Our Tokyo correspondent Chris Gilbert explains. Apparently, he's uh, got uh, very mild symptoms and a cough, and uh, he did have to cancel a trip. He was going to go to Tunisia, where he was going to attend a conference on African development. The summer vacation, of course, has just ended here. Like Japan's a country where the whole country effectively goes on vacation at the same time of year in summertime. It's called uh, Obon or Natsuyasumi. And so what that effectively means is that people from Tokyo spread all over the country and spread COVID-19 to everywhere else in the country that doesn't have it. Prime Minister Kishida brought back COVID-19 with him. He will attend the conference online. He is apparently, you know, in bed resting with a fever at the official residence. And until, you know, I guess he's feeling better. Uh, Japan, of course, is still in the midst of its worst surge yet of COVID-19. You know, we thought the Olympics this time last year was the dark days. You know, we had about 5,000 cases back then in, in Tokyo. And then with the first Omicron wave, we had about 10 to 15,000 cases a day. And now with the new Omicron wave, we have 25,000 cases a day. Although the death rate remains quite low, which is a positive thing. But, um, yeah, let's hope the prime minister recovers quickly. 25,000 a day. Can I just ask, what's the go where you are in terms of restrictions or is it if they kind of opened things up well i mean japan never really had a lockdown so to speak i mean it's against the law here effectively to to tell businesses that they they can't do business there were measures in place which they called state of emergencies which uh as time went on became more and more just like a symbolic gesture Mm. but i guess it's really down in terms of uh locking things down and closing businesses down to the discretion of you know the person running the business at the moment although I mean, Japan is a culture, everyone's wearing masks, you know, I mean, it's 35 degrees outside and, you know, go on the train and go on the bus or in a shop and every single person is wearing a mask. So I, I think that is, you know, containing the spread some. So, you know, like lowering the viral load. So when the virus does spread, they don't spread as much of the virus. So which means people don't get quite as sick. But yeah, I mean, it, it's effectively back to normal here, Nick. Mm. And in Shibuya, let's just move on. There's this case of a high school girl who stabbed two people and she wanted the death penalty. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, it's a really yeah, it's a really sad story. So yeah. what effectively happened is that on Saturday night, there's a 15-year-old girl went into Maruyamacho, which is right next to Dorgenzaka, I guess the red light district, I guess you could call it, of Shibuya, like a lot of love hotels, a lot of seedy businesses mm. in downtown, that part of downtown Shibuya, and just randomly stabbed two people, a 53-year-old woman and a 19-year-old mother. Of course, you know, we've had this conversation a lot recently with the shooting of Abe, is that most violent attacks, when they do happen in Japan, are usually with knives, not with guns. The police, of course, don't have guns, and so things such as suicide by police isn't really a thing here. But what is a thing here is the death penalty. The man who shot Shinzo Abe, you know, a month and a half ago, we were saying, like, likely won't get the death penalty because it's usually given to people who do uh, heinous crimes on, on, a, on a larger scale, you know, that, are, that I guess kind of like domestic acts of terror that kill a lot of people. This girl, you know, and she's 15, man, and, and, you know, she stabbed two people and she was arrested. Apparently she had a lot of knives on her. The two victims now, by the way, are in hospital and uh, recovering and reportedly will take a, a few months to heal from their wounds. But, you know, it's a timely reminder, I guess, that random attacks like these happen because Japan does have the death penalty, you know, by hanging for attacks on large groups of people. You know, and that is coupled by very strict social uniformity and conformity in the school system and an underdeveloped and, uh, I guess, dated approach to the mental health care. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like if kids are struggling, not just kids, but working people, too. If they're struggling with their mental health, if they're feeling isolated, if things aren't good at home. There's not very many places that they can. And so, you know, it, it, is, it is a symptom of, I guess, a, a not so ideal state of affairs in terms of how people are looked after in the, in the mental health here. Our correspondent Chris uh, Gilbert there reporting from Tokyo. Hindus in Indian-administered Kashmir are on edge after the killing of a teacher. Police say Ranj, uh, Rajni Bala was shot by anti-India militants because of her religion. The killing is the latest in a spate of deaths targeting Hindus in Kashmir, which is India's only Muslim-majority state. The BBC's Yagita Lamai has more. A school in trauma. Earlier this year, as these students in Kashmir gathered for morning prayers, their teacher was killed metres away. They heard the gunshot and found her on the ground, bleeding from her head. The spot has been marked with stones. Rajni Bala was killed by anti-India militants, police say. A mother and wife, a much-loved history teacher. We're devastated. She was a wonderful person, adored not just in the school, but in our village. Her colleague Saima Akhtar told us. It's believed Rajni was targeted because she was a Hindu, a minority in the country's only Muslim-majority region. Teachers told us she feared for her life after a wave of killings of people from her community. There had been a targeted killing of a Hindu, just two kilometres away. She was scared and had applied for a transfer. Kashmir's long-running and complex conflict started with the killings of hundreds of Hindus 30 years ago. But this minority has rarely been targeted since 2003. Now it's facing a resurgent threat that's left Hindu families terrified. 
These men work in government jobs and are demanding they be moved out of Kashmir. Sanjay Kohl is a teacher at a public school. If someone next to me takes their hands out of their pocket, I feel they are going to pull out a gun to shoot me. We have stopped sending our children to school and we hardly go out of our compound. Insurgent groups say they are attacking minorities because the government is trying to change the religious makeup of Kashmir. The accusation stems from India's actions here three years ago. Federal rule was imposed, outsiders allowed to buy land, leading to fears that India's Hindu nationalist government wanted to alter the religious demographics of Muslim-majority Kashmir. Distrust against the state soared. Since 2019, things have gotten a lot worse. There is no elected government here, and large sections of the police and bureaucracy are now officers from outside the region. Which means amongst local people here, there is a strong feeling that their voice is being suppressed, and they don't have any say in the decisions that are being made to govern them. There are also allegations of killings of Muslim civilians by Indian security forces. We travelled to Shopian in southern Kashmir. This is where 20-year-old Shoaib Muhammad Ganai is buried. A university student who loved playing cricket. He was killed in the middle of the day in the local market. His parents and eyewitnesses say he was shot dead point-blank by a paramilitary soldier. We want justice for this cruelty that's been inflicted on us. A piece of our hearts has been taken from us, his father, Ghulam Muhammad, told us. The police and paramilitary say their son was killed in crossfire. We are being ruled by ruthless people. Despite what eyewitnesses say, they insist he was shot in crossfire. The Indian government denies that there's an atmosphere of fear in Kashmir. It says its policies are bringing peace and development. The growing violence contradicts the claims. Yogita Lamai with that report. It's 23 minutes past five. I'm Nick Trubridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, cruise ships are back in Auckland, but what impact are they actually having on struggling CBD businesses? We'll find out. We we spoke to the Nelson Tradies who are stepping up to fix homes damaged by the floods and we'll cross to our reporter in neighbouring Marlborough to hear how that region is faring. The first cruise ship to visit New Zealand in 29 months glided into the Waitemata Harbour earlier this month. 25 more of the floating hotels are scheduled to arrive before the end of the year, providing, well, a breath of fresh air for downtown Auckland businesses. Tom Taylor checked in with business leaders to find out why they're so eager for an influx of cruise passengers. Earlier this month, more than a 1,000 tourists disembarked the Pacific Explorer to a crisp, sunny Auckland's day. New Zealand Cruise Association Chief Executive Kevin O'Sullivan was there to welcome them ashore as was Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Quite a few dawdles to say hi to um, Ms Ardern. 
After that, they wandered off into the cafes around Queen Street and Key Street and then on up the road. Mr O'Sullivan said although the visit lasted just a few hours, it provided an opportunity for the cruise industry to iron out some kinks after more than two years absent from Aotearoa. Ordinarily, they'd be here for 12 hours. It was useful because it enabled everybody to work out some of the processes that we haven't seen for several years. Those working in downtown Auckland say they recognised the crowd of newcomers by the lanyards they wore around their necks. That, and their Australian accents. It was quite surreal in a funny sort of way because suddenly you had just, it took you back several years and you, you know you had Australians just sort of filtering through the shop and they were visible, they were very visible. That's Roger Marbeck of Marbeck's record shop in Queen's Arcade, a few hundred metres away from the cruise terminal. He says the tourists were in good spirits and spent their money accordingly. The beauty of on a cruise ship is it's a floating motel room, basically. So you just load on, load off, and that's it, job done. So you're not carting it with you all the time. While Marbex had a steady stream of loyal customers, other shops in Queen's Arcade had not been so lucky, with several shutting their doors for good since the pandemic. Roger Marbex says the arrival of many more cruise ships from October onwards could provide struggling businesses with a much-needed boost. That's the way it used to be here. I mean, when the cruise ships came in, you'd get two or three in a day and town would be absolutely humming and town really does need a, a shot in the arm, that's for sure. Heart of the City Interim Chief Executive Steve Armitage says cruise passengers deliver a direct benefit to downtown Auckland, more so than any other type of traveller. Unlike people who are coming in from air travel and coming through the airport and then disperse through the Auckland region and obviously further afield, the cruise ships discharge their passengers directly into the city centre. And the vast majority of those ships are only here for the day, which means that invariably people tend to stay within the city centre, which is obviously good news for inner city businesses. With 25 more ships on the horizon before year's end, heart of the city is looking to make Auckland's downtown as attractive as possible to visitors. One of their beautification schemes involves art installations and vacant shops, like those in Queen's Arcade. The Heart of the City team has been working quite closely with a number of the owners of buildings within the city centre area to talk about how we can activate some of those vacant tenancies. You may have seen as you've walked down Queen Street, some of them have been activated with lighting installations and some art installations, which is great because it fills a gap until such time as the market comes back and those leases are able to be filled with retail and other offering. Mr Armitage acknowledges that the cruise industry is not without its problems, and while it's taking steps to reduce its carbon footprint, bigger talks around Auckland's infrastructure and ability to accommodate large bursts of visitors will be needed soon. We were already facing pressures around some of the larger vessels that were looking to come into port in Auckland and whether they could be accommodated given our our infrastructure. So at some point there'll need to be some consideration as to what the long-term outlook requires from an infrastructure point of view. But in the here and now, you know, we're just eagerly awaiting the ships coming in over the summer period and bringing those international visitors and their money back into the city centre to support our business community. The next cruise ship destined for Auckland's shores is the Majestic Princess on October 16. What you're trying to say, you're trying to say, let's get down to business, it's business time. It's business, it's business time. Joining us now from the business team is Giles Beckford. Morena. Morena to you, Nick. Let's start with Kiwi Bank, I suppose. Uh, can, actually, Giles, before we before we get into Kiwi Bank, uh, ACC and NZ Post wanting to exit their holdings. Why? 
basically because they had their arms. Well, New Zealand Post was the uh, the the parent, shall we say, of Kiwi Bank. It's where it was founded. It was attached to it when it was founded in 2002. In that time, I suppose it sort of made sense. Remember, we used to have things called post offices, and in each post office, it was usually a Kiwi Bank operation as well. So called, called, went, called what, sorry? It called a branch office. Oh, OK. All right. As I, I know, it's an alien concept. Yeah. Um, uh, ACC and the Superfund... We're sort of shoehorned, uh, persuaded, shall we say, by the government of the day and by New Zealand Post to come and help out New Zealand Post with Kiwi Bank. That's how they got involved in it back in 2016. You remember New Zealand Post at that stage was had its back to the wall. Mail volumes were going through the floor. Uh, it was struggling to make any money at all. Kiwi Bank was a big rock around its neck. Um, they were locked in for five years, so last year was their first opportunity to review. It was at that stage they were thinking, why are we involved here? I have to say, all the gossip was, ACC was never enthusiastic about it um, and uh, was more than happy to see the back of it. New Zealand Post became less uh, enamoured of it, saying, look, we may have been the parents of it, but actually we've just gone our own separate ways now because we don't do much in the way of letters anymore, it's all parcels, um, and we don't need... A, and Kiwi Bank saying, well, we, you know, we don't have all these big branches like we used to. Mm. So Superfund was willing to step in. The question is, and this is the point that was made uh, yesterday by uh, government and Superfund, was Superfund is a commercial outfit, and it says, if we're going to bring in outside money, then the people who bring that money in uh, will want a seat at the table to see how it's spent. Uh, and by the way, if we want to get out, then we want to actually preserve all the options. We want to say if if a big overseas company comes up and says, we'll pay you $10 billion for Kiwi Bank, we want to be able to take it. And the government said, no, Kiwi no. Bank's a Kiwi Bank, mm. state-owned bank. So that's where we are. The question I pose to people is, do we need a state-owned bank? I'll give you just a couple of sets of questions because Katrina will shout down my ear saying, shut up. Uh, <laughs> Never. Right. Last week, Kiwi Bank made a profit of $131 million. All stayed in New Zealand. Right? Mm. The week before that, ASB made a profit of $1.47 billion. Goes to Australia because it's owned by Commonwealth Bank of Australia. It paid a billion dollars in dividends to CBA uh, in the past year. Mm. Right? And you've got to think it's going to be the same for the other big three banks, which are all Australian-owned, and half of them used to be New Zealand-owned. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's a question for listeners, isn't it? What do we Precisely. think? What do we think of what do we think of this this move to? Well, well, it was crown owned, but now it's directly crown owned. I suppose you I'll could make say. One, I'll make one other point to you, Nick, which is that if Kiwi Bank's to actually go places, because uh, it's only got about five percent market share, it's mm. going to need a big impulse of capital, yeah. and the state as the shareholders, the only place it's going to get it. Hey, uh, thanks, Giles. Giles Beckford there with our business news. There'll be more on that at morning rep- in Morning Report at 10 to 7. Right, to Nelson, where a team of tradies and volunteers have joined forces to help flood-stricken residents repair their broken homes. Hundreds of residents are still waiting for an assessment of damage to their properties, with some being told their homes are written off, they're uninhabitable. Worse still, some don't have insurance. But as Mavash Ikram reports, all hope is not lost, thanks to some local legends. 
When Christy and Michael Benzeman saw the pounding Nelson was taking from last week's weather bomb, they knew they had to step up. We had a chat about how we could help and give back to the community. And so we, we decided to have a chat with the guys and there was a lot of keenness amongst the guys to get out there and, and give people a hand where we can. The owners of Nelson Builders assembled their crew of workers and Christy put up a message on the local Facebook community page saying they were available to help. So we um, just decided to put it out there and give people the opportunity to take that up. I guess mainly targeting people that, that are in need or really struggling, who are isolated. And then, yeah, just being pretty open-minded really about what we could offer. Given the extent of the devastation in the region, it didn't take long for the phone to start ringing. A lot of kind of like people that just don't have anyone else to call or I guess solo mums, those sorts of things. Probably, you know, the main work we did when we first put it out there was helping sandbagging because it was in between the two big lots of rain. So we were just trying to help people prepare for that second uh, lot of rain on the Friday night. So that was, you know, just getting a whole lot of sand and I would source some free bags and things like that. While Christy took the call, her husband Michael Benzeman got to work. The initial response was sandbagging and, and diverting water on properties. And that was sort of happening really during the rain when it was Thursday, Friday. And we tried to protect some houses before the big rain on Friday, and which was, was successful. Since then, it's been a little bit of clean-up. He says some of the locals he helped had no one else to turn to. There's a couple of ladies in, in, in town in the wood, and they didn't know who to call. Some people noticed our posts on Facebook and and basically took up the offer and said, look, I am struggling, I do need help. And we, we helped a, a single mum, we helped a, a, an elderly lady, you know, and it was more those other people that that we wanted to help as well, so it was quite good to be able to do that. As well as people needing help, the couple started getting calls from other tradies keen to lend a hand. People have been really great when they saw the message. Our, our subbies and our suppliers are also saying, hey, cool, we're keen to pitch in as well, and other people saying, look, we're keen to help. Someone just contacted us through the Facebook community group, but when he's like, hey, there's a group of 15 of us, we're also really wanting to help. If you see any particular need where it needs that kind of amount, you know, then let us know. Even clients, architects, a lot of people rang me up and said, hey, when you have something, you know, decent to, that needs fixed up or needs some manpower or, you know, just basically hands on deck, we'll, we'll be there. So, yeah, a lot of support. It's been awesome. And with the extent of the damage just beginning to unfold, they will need all the help they can get. Mavash Ikram reporting there. Well, from Nelson to Marlborough, we join now local democracy reporting programme journalist Maya Hart, who's been covering the floods in the region. Morena, Maya. Morena, how are you? Yeah, really well, thank you. Uh, and it looks like you had a busy day yesterday. You were in the thick of it. Tell us what you saw uh, in your neck of the woods. How badly affected is Marlborough? Well, honestly, they're still trying to understand the extent of it. Um, on Sunday, the cloud was actually quite low and there's heaps of debris in the water, which made it quite hard to kind of start doing any assessments of damage out in the Marlborough Sound. Um, but they managed to get out yesterday to have a look. I yeah, saw one flip quite close to town. Um, yeah, pretty messy out there. In terms of, you, you mentioned houses briefly, have any been able to be assessed? And if so, what, what's the sort of count of, you know, yellow versus red, for example? 
We actually still don't have a count. They were out in the Marlborough Sounds. The Civil Defence went with some building assessors, uh, geotech engineers and fire and emergency yesterday. Um, I mean, we've definitely seen photos of a few. Um, but yeah, at the moment, they still don't know and they're still going to do some assessment work for the coming days, they say. Just because it's out Marlborough Sounds way and obviously that takes a while to get to when these communities are cut off. Yeah, hard to access. Are some people homeless? Um. I believe so. We're still, yeah, people have definitely been displaced um, and have moved to other places, but yeah, other sounds of things. So where can they go, these people? I guess it's uh, family, there's a, there's a welfare centre set up, I would imagine? Yes, there is, and the eyes opened up pretty quickly afterwards, but I'm sure, yeah, most have probably gone to other family and the like, yeah, for sure. What What's the mood down there? Tell us how people in Marlborough respond to these things. Honestly, I think everyone's just a little bit tired. Um, obviously, there was the July floods last year um, that knocked out Kinnapuru Road, and that was still ongoing and only kind of open um, here and there. Now, of course, there's been more floods. So, yeah, I think, I mean, we've had two floods already this winter, nothing compared to this one. So I think, yeah, everyone's just probably quite sick of having to clean up the mess. Where are you? You're in Blenheim, I imagine? I am a Blenheim base, yeah. So I don't, I guess, get the the, the full extent of the damage and see it all so going out in the Marlborough Sounds, where most of it is in Rye Valley. So it's more these cut-off areas. You mentioned Marlborough Sounds, Rye Valley. It's sort of those areas that are isolated and now hard for authorities to get to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's still a, there's closures on State Highway 63, which is quite close to town, and on Amalutu, which is also, yeah, fairly close to town as well. But a lot of it is, yeah, Rye Valley, French Pass. Kinaparoo, all of those more sound areas that were already quite difficult to get to. Mm. What's the outlook for the rest of the week, for example, in terms of the weather? Is there more coming? Um, doesn't sound like it's going to be as, as bad as Tasman area. Um, yeah, mm. the forecast is looking uh, yeah, better for sure. But, I mean, <laughs> who knows? There may be some rain on Thursday and Friday. And a long clean-up ahead, right? Yeah, about the sorts of things, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, thanks, uh, Maya, Maya Hart, our local democracy reporter, joining us from Blenheim there. It's 18 minutes to six. I'm Nick Trubridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, Nationals 2IC, Nicola Willis, joins us to talk the future of Kiwi Bank, the country's staff shortages, and of course the anti-government protest plan for today. We'll also cross to our reporter outside Parliament to find out how police are preparing for the protesters' arrival. Uh, we're not going to see a repeat of February's occupation, are we? <laughs> The professionals of Morning Reporter up after six and for a quick preview of the, well, the only news programme worth listening to between six and nine a.m. in the morning in this country is Susie Ferguson. Morena. Kia ora, how are you? Yeah, really well. Uh, gearing up for some, well, hopefully not too much action in Wellington, but uh, what have you got? Yeah, hopefully not too much action in Wellington because police will certainly be out in force in the capital today with this anti-government protest that is planned at Parliament. We will bring you all the latest on that. Also, hospitals have just a week to book operations for thousands of patients who've been waiting longer than a year for surgery. 
Of course, we'll have the latest from the Nelson Marlborough region and also today's the day that Labour's caucus will decide whether to expel rogue MP Gaurav Sharma. It's all coming up after six. Thanks, Susie. Uh, yeah, as she says, 13 minutes to go until morning report. Do not miss it. Uh, right, each week... Of course, we talked with the deputy leaders of both the country's largest political parties. And this morning, it's the turn of National's Deputy Nicola Willis. I spoke to her ahead, of course, uh, what promises to be an eventful day in the capital with more anti-government protesters making their way to Parliament this morning. I asked Miss Willis if she's worried about seeing scenes like those from the occupation of Parliament's lawn back in February. Look, I know Wellingtonians will want to see a peaceful and law-abiding protest. That seems to be what the protesters say they're going for, and I really want to see that because it's awful when people who are just going about their daily life have that terribly disrupted by people protesting. Nationals' policy has been... Well, if you look at the last protest, it was basically not to engage, uh, at least in person. What is the policy this time around? Well, look, the National supports the right for people to peacefully protest. In fact, we think it's essential to democracy that people be able to do that and that they be able to do that at Parliament, the seat of our democracy. Our concern with the last protest was that there were threats of violence. People were absolutely disrupted from being able to run their business or get to and from home safely, and the laws were broken. What we hope to see this time is that it's peaceful, and if it is, national MPs typically will hear protesters or engage with them as they're coming to and from Parliament. They may agree to disagree on quite a few of the issues that they're raising, but that's in the nature of democracy, that we hear a wide range of views, uh, some of which we don't agree with. So as of as of right now, the steer from, I guess, the, the party leaders is so long as it remains peaceful, national MPs are able to make their own decisions about going out and, and talking to the people that gather on the lawn tomorrow. That's right. Obviously, last time there was a tweet from Maureen Pugh. There were a few concern, posts of concern by uh, Harete Hipango. Have you given your MPs any guidance this time around about what the leaders deem acceptable? Look, as I say, we've made it clear that we want to see a peaceful and law-abiding protest. We think protest is an important part of our democracy, so we won't be constraining our MPs from engaging. But as I said to you, it's likely that many of the views that are expressed in this protest tomorrow are views that we in the National Party disagree with, have publicly disagreed with. And so I imagine not all of our MPs will be getting down there as a matter of priority. Will you be heading down there? Oh, look, it's likely that when I'm coming to and from Parliament, I'll see the protesters. Obviously, I'm a Wellingtonian, so I do walk through the forecourt. I'll have no problem in saying hello. But as I say, if I see anything that's threatening, that's violent, that's unlawful, I won't have a bar of it. I guess this is this. We, you know, we had a conversation a little uh, a little while ago around affording your colleagues sort of their right to freedom of speech while protecting the party's interests and in, in doing things in a way that, well, yourself as leader, that Mr Luxon find acceptable. Is that basically the balance here? 
Well, no. I think there's a really big difference between listening to people Mm. and agreeing with people. And National has a really clear party position. We've been pro-vaccination. We continue to believe it's the best defence against COVID-19, and we recommend it to New Zealanders. That is our party position. But what say, just sorry to interrupt, but what say one of your members tomorrow contravened that position in some way while engaging with these protesters? What would the course of action be? Oh, look, that's not going to happen. Because you've directed them not to? How do you know it's not going to happen? Well, because I know that the members of our caucus, all 33 of them, agree with National's position, which is a pro-vaccination position. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Let's move on. Gurav Sharma has released what would appear to be a text sent by Kitty Allen to her colleagues, in effect, and I'm paraphrasing here, but telling them not to send correspondence without chatting to ministerial colleagues first and reminding her colleagues that correspondence can be OIA'd. What do you make of that? Look, I think that this whole matter with Dr Sharma is something for the Labour Party and for its leader, Jacinda Ardern, to respond to. I'm loath to become the commentator on events which really I don't have the full context for, I don't have all of the background information for. I do know that the Official Information Act is an important thing and where things are documented and where information is received, it's important that ministers abide by that law. Equally, it's been the practice over successive governments that backbenchers use all means possible to communicate their views with ministers. And typically, a phone call or a conversation is one of the more persuasive ways of doing that. Mm. National's obviously long been calling for more overseas workers um, to be allowed to New Zealand. Do you support the government lowering the median wage requirement for migrant workers, which they've said will allow, what, an extra 12000 I believe it is? Look, there's a desperate need for workers. I've been in Queenstown just last week and business owners there and employees there are exhausted because there just aren't enough people to do the work, to wait the tables, to clean the hotels, to cook the food. Restaurants are having to close several nights a week. They've had to hire a large number of school kids to get the work done. So we're pleased to see the government being a bit pragmatic about this because actually People on working holiday visas have done these jobs successfully for many years. They bring richness to communities, they bring global connections, and they're a positive thing. And numbers have just been so far down from our typical 50 to 70,000 working holiday visa holders to just under 4,000 this year. That's a big gap to be filled. Is it the right lever, though? Because you don't have to look too far to find critics who basically say this will create a second class of citizen. Well, I don't think so, because all working conditions that New Zealanders have guaranteed must be met for migrants. Now, National has also said we'd like to see more moves to take people from welfare into work, and we've put forward policies to achieve that. We think that's complementary. But actually, immigration has enriched our communities. Getting it at the right level will help undo some of the constraints in our economy right now that are holding back growth and making it really difficult for a number of industries and businesses. You mentioned your trip to Queenstown and the fact that, uh, did you say, well, basically young people filling a lot of these roles? Did you say? Yes, I. Yeah. School kids. I had a conversation with people at the. 
Queenstown business organisation. And they said one of the go-to places for new employees now is Wakatipu High School. And look, I think that reflects the fact that there's a desperate shortage of workers. And while there's nothing wrong with hiring school-aged students, clearly there is a lack of people uh, with the experience to do some roles, you know, chefing, for example, and that's really holding the town back, uh, and it's ho- holding back a number of sectors around the country. It's not necessarily a bad place to find employees, but perhaps the suggestion is, uh, well, we, you know, Wakatipu High School's probably not an endless supply for the for holes in the workforce, and, you know, they've probably got schoolwork to do as well. They can't fit around the hours necessarily. <laughs> That's right. There are limits to it, you know. Those students also need to pass their NCEA and probably need to help a bit with the housework too. Right, to Wellington now, where, as we've just heard from Nicola Willis, anti-government protesters are gathering this morning, just over five months since the occupation of Parliament's grounds ended. The protesters expected to commence from 10.30 this morning. Counter-protesters, we saw some of them in Auckland recently, they are also believed to be gathering nearby. Reporter Rosie Gordon is up early and joins us from the capital. Morena, Rosie. Morena, Nick. Let's start with uh, the police response. What have they said about how they're going to handle this today? What if someone sets up a tent? Yeah, so the police have reinforcements that have been called in from outside of Wellington. Police say, look, we respect the right to lawful protest, but behaviour deemed unlawful or behaviour that disrupts people from going about their lawful business will not be tolerated. They say trespass orders remain in place for some people that were trespassed from Parliament earlier this year, and they will look to enforce those orders. What's the mood in Wellington? Give us the vibe. Yeah, I mean, well, it's safe to say that Wellington, you know, depending on who you ask, is on high alert. Wellingtonians do not want to see a repeat of that 23-day occupation back in February that ended in that fiery clash with police. It really disrupted people who live, work and go to school around the Parliament area. It's hard to know what this one's going to be like. Businesses nearby that we've spoken to say they're planning on being open today. They're actually expecting a little bit of a quiet day today. RNZ understands that many of the public servants who are important customers for CBD business have been encouraged to work from home today if they can. The message from officials to Wellingtonians is to go about their day as normal if they can today. And this is the the freedom and rights crowd specifically, isn't it? I see Brian Tamaki's already been cited down there. He seems to be heading this one up. Whereas last time, geez, you, you only had to walk down there and it, it was pretty unclear who was running the show. Yeah, last time there certainly was kind of that element of who's who's in charge here, who's um, w- what even is, is their kind of key cause. We know that the Freedom and Rights Coalition protesters started making their way down to the capital yesterday from Auckland in what they were calling a convoy. Police are expecting more than a thousand protesters to arrive at Parliament. They're expected to, the main group is expected to meet at Civic Square later this morning. They'll march to Parliament and the protest is slated to finish up at about 2 o'clock this afternoon but it's it's difficult to know you know what, what exactly um, or how exactly this will unfold. Mm, and just very quickly, how many people are we talking, expecting? Yeah, police have, have said they're expecting more than a thousand protesters. I popped down there just before. It was, you know, still pretty dark out there. It seemed pretty quiet. I saw a lone police car just sort of driving around the area. So mm. uh, hard to see how many people are, are there or going to be there this morning or later this morning. But police are expecting uh, quite a crowd. 
Hey, thanks, Rosie. Rosie Gordon there from Wellington. We'll have more on that protest in Morning Report. Just before we go, Paul writes, Brian Tamaki and the Freedom and Rights Coalition are products of a counterculture crafted online. They would be better off protesting in central Otago hillside as opposed to Wellington. Plenty of rabbit holes. He says, that's cheeky, Paul. If you're going along, hey, look, let's keep it civil. Don't throw any pavers. Uh, Let's try and keep our heads. Before we go, a little tribute to Margaret Ehrlich. Of course, passed away the news we got this morning uh, of cancer after a battle. 57 years old. Rest in peace, Margaret.